Welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. So, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword or danger? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We bless your name today. Because you have shown us a love that's unstoppable. You've shown us a love that's insurmountable. You've shown us a love that is unchangeable. And because you've shown us that type of love, we have hope today. We have faith today. And we have confidence today that you can change us and you can change our world for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have your seats. Hey, can we give it up again for the worship team that just thank you guys for leading us so powerfully. That, that got me going. Well, what's good, Bridge family? Uh, if you're just visiting, my name is Rasul. I'm one of the pastors here. And you're actually here at a crucial time in the history of our church. As we, we are now wrapping up a series that's focused on the church's role in justice called God of Freedom, American Slavery, and the Church. We are addressing this issue because, first of all, God is the author of justice. He says in his word that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. But we also know that this is a crucial issue in today's world. And people are more and more aware of the injustices that are all around us and are wondering what to do about it. And even what might the church have anything to say about these things. So I do just want to give you a heads up that as we've kind of, you know, dug deep and are kind of wrapping up this series that this is just the beginning. We will continue to push what we believe is God's agenda forward to help make peace and justice in our world. Is that all right? Well, we're going to do it anyway, but I just wanted to see if you was going to feel me. <laughs> now, sadly, the tragic story that Lordessa's uh, brother, Olin, you know, uh, that we just got a chance to hear is not unique, though he is. Unfortunately, he is one of millions that have been caught up and impacted and lost 21 years and counting of his life. But as we also heard today that this, this, this crisis doesn't just impact those who are incarcerated, but the families that have to deal with that loss. 
So today, we're addressing over-criminalization and mass incarceration. But, but instead of just talking about this as kind of a concept and an idea, we need to talk about individuals and families and communities that are being destroyed, that are being distressed by our current criminal justice system, both those who have been incarcerated and those who haven't. Now, the subtitle of this sermon was American Slavery in the Church, and so it was like this kind of feels like a weird random add-on. But the reality is that slavery didn't end in 1865. It evolved into what we now know as the mass incarceration system. Now, here's how Michelle Alexander, the author of The New Jim Crow, defines mass incarceration. Now, bear with me because it's a long definition. Mass incarceration is a massive system of racial and social control. It is the process by which people are swept into the criminal justice system, branded criminals and felons, locked up for long periods of time, more than other countries in the world, and then released into a permanent second-class status in which they are stripped of basic civil and human rights, like the right to vote, the right to serve on juries, and the right to be free of legal discrimination in employment, in housing, and in access to public benefits. Now, why do we call it mass incarceration? Well, the data here is startling and staggering. The United States of America makes up 5% of the world's population but incarcerates 25% of the world's population. One out of every four prisoners in the world is an American citizen. Let that sit for a second. Now, not only are they there, these 2.3 million imprisoned people, men and women, but they are serving longer sentences, in worse conditions for lesser crimes than anywhere else in the world. But the story of mass incarceration isn't just about crime, as we're going to see here today. It's about categorizing people as criminals. And that's a different thing. And that happens often by color and class. In fact, the Human Rights Watch found that blacks and Hispanics account for nearly 80% of all drug offenders sent to prison, even though studies consistently show that white people use and sell drugs at the same rate as every other racial group. So in this graph that you see, you see that uh, on the left-hand side, the blue bar represents the percentage of illicit drug users in America. Over 70% white Americans, as we see. The red bar represents the percent of drug war prisoners in America, which they only represent less than 20%, and yet blacks and Hispanics, you add that up, is over 75%. Now, race, though, only tells part of the story. You see, 
If we were to look at us as a nation, 14% of the U.S. population lives at or below the poverty line. And yet, people in prison under the poverty line, meaning when they were arrested, where they were at economically, 53%, over half. Why is that? Well, as Brian Stevenson, the author of Just Mercy, says, we live in a society that treats the rich and guilty better than the poor and the innocent. Let that sink in. Clearly, this is a justice issue, but how do we engage on something with the sheer enormity of these facts? We haven't even gotten to the five million people who are not incarcerated but are under state surveillance and supervision, parole and probation. And those numbers can seem overwhelming, but I have good news here because it's similar to when they say, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And I think Leviticus in chapter 19 gives us some principles for us to understand what is a biblical perspective in response to this. In it, in Leviticus 19, starting from verse 15, Moses writes, you shall do, you shall, I'm sorry, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. Now, we're going to examine three things, three kind of practical applications of this, uh, components of this today. The first we're going to look at is the problem of partiality. Then the proper perspective. And finally, the power of of proximity. Now, first, when we look at the, the, the first part of this passage, it says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial. Now, look at the command there. It assumes, it doesn't say like, hey, guys, keep doing what y'all doing. Just, you know, hold it down like regular. It, it assumes and it presupposes the fact that we have an inclination and a proclivity to be unjust in our courts to be partial in the way that we mete out justice. And notice that even then, in Leviticus, when this is written a couple thousand years ago, the poor are a key aspect of that targeting. You see, much like the ancient world, our modern system of imprisonment shows great injustice and in that we are prone to impartiality, that we are prone to partiality. And that partiality prompts us to make certain people disappear. Certain people, we don't mind it as much if they're missing, if they're gone, if they're not in our midst and among us. The great activist and thinker Angela Deva once said it this way, prisons do not disappear problems, they disappear human beings. And the practice of disappearing vast numbers of people from poor, immigrant, and racially marginalized communities has literally become big business. As we shared in our first message, people have oppressed each other because instead of reflecting the image of God, we'd rather pretend to be the standard and be God ourselves. Injustice is an idolatry problem. 
And it's crucial for us to see the specific history of how this partiality has worked in our country if we're going to understand the issue of mass incarceration today and how to respond to it. Because you see, every single one of us has been socialized to understand ourselves in the category of who's in and who's out. Who is the other? Now, the 13th Amendment was passed after the Civil War and millions of slaves were set free. But as amazing as that was, most people don't talk about the fine print. You know that fine print that you get when, like, you download the apps and it's like, you know, you sign your life away and let them have control of your camera and your, all your whereabouts at all the time? You never know the fine print. Well, the fine print in the 13th Amendment says that all involuntary slavery is abolished in America except for those who are being punished for a crime. And this loophole, that except for those, has set the stage not for slavery's abolition, but for its mutation with the criminal justice system. And we're going to kind of give you, help you see how that happened. Because you see, after, shortly after the 13th Amendment was signed and the 14th and the 15th, which gave uh, blacks the full citizenship and the right to vote, black codes were passed. Now, what are black codes? Yeah, it actually became law for a black person that it would be criminal act to walk alongside of a railroad, for a person, a black person to speak loudly in the company of white women, and for black farmers to sell products from their farm after dark. A host of random and meaningless rules with a purpose in mind. Because you see what happened is they would use these rules and then when somebody broke those rules, they would use that as a pretext to incarcerate them. But not only was that enough from a legal standpoint, there was this other dynamic that happens and that is the mythology of black criminality. Now, you ever notice how the fact that this whole criminal mythology didn't exist during slavery because folks wanted to keep getting more and more black people in to do work? So how did it get from like, yes, this is a great source of labor to like, these are the menaces that are destroying? Well, in the cultural imagination, there was a uh, movie called um, Birth of a Nation. Now, not the one that just came out a year ago, but uh, a classic from D.W. Griffith. In this movie, which was originally called The Klansman, featured and told the story of the post-Civil War era in such a way where this was the gist that because the meddling North had come in and destroyed their society, now these black men were running amok, raping white women and destroying the very fabric of Southern society. And who was to come to the rescue in this, uh, in this movie but the KKK? And now the, this was uh, D.W. Griffith was the son of a Klansman himself. And, and this was the first blockbuster movie in American history. The uh, president of the United States at the time said this was like history written in lightning. Um, in, the in the movie was the first time we saw burning crosses. D.W. Griffith came up with that idea. 
And in the aspect of life imitating art, the Klansmen resurged as a result of this movie and began to use a symbol that they saw in the movie. And as was the case uh, as this actor that's portraying a black man who's actually a white man in blackface, lynching became a part of the very fabric of the South. Now, the myth of this danger still follows us today and shapes many, the racial imagination of many in our society, but not just white, Asian, Hispanic, or immigrant, but even in, a black, in the, our own communities. This, this idea of the criminal, this idea of, okay, this person is walking, coming up to me in the middle of the night, and I'm, I'm afraid for my life all of a sudden. And this mythology has infected and invaded our law enforcement, our politicians, and our criminal justice system. These prisoners now in this black code system, okay, well, what would happen? They didn't just lock them up and just let them chill. These prisoners were then sold to corporations in what was called convict leasing, and their labor was used to mine coals, coal mines, to build railroads, and to harvest timber. And this stolen labor is what rebuilt the South after the Civil War. 90% of the people arrested on these bogus crimes were black. And this period is deeply connected to the concept of mass incarceration today. This period of reconstruction gave birth to an equally violent period known as Jim Crow, which set uh, these brutal and barbaric segregation laws, which further drove home the narrative that black was other and less than. And, you, and again, just to understand how important it is for us to get the ideology behind this and how devastating it was, Kenneth Clark, a psychologist from right here in New York City, Oh, it used this key um, research called the, the, the baby dial test. Many of you probably have heard of it to, to actually overthrow uh, Brown versus Board of Education, uh, the overcome se segregation as legal in the states, separate but equal. And what he did was he showed that this segregation and this, and this, and this uh, prioritization of race was actually impacting the young black women, girls, and boys, and when they were asked, which doll do you want, which doll is more beautiful, they would pick the white doll. And so that era didn't end until the 1960s. Now, and now we get to 1970. In 1970, there were 200,000 people who were imprisoned in the United States. But now, some 40 years later, we have more than 2 million people. And this is the era of mass incarceration. Well, what happened? Well, crime increasingly was met with a brutal response, and the label of a menace to society continued to be further and further pounded in, and the solution locked them up, became more and more uh, the approach. And sadly, our system doesn't work that well if you can't hire a dream team, and if Johnny Cochran is not walking through that door, so if it, don't fit, if it don't fit, then we must acquit, then, then you're in trouble. Because if you have to get a public defender, someone that's appointed by the court, by the way, that rule didn't even come in place until the mid-1950s, then you have to get a public defender. The average public defender has 300 cases in a year. They barely have time to know your name before the case starts. 
So mass incarceration, though, we have to understand, isn't first a violation of the Constitution, but of the divine image that we all bear. And it reflects this problem of partiality. And you see, the reality is that, you know what the fastest growing population of inmates are now? African-American women. The, the, the amount of women in the uh, prison uh, industrial complex has risen like 700% over the last 30 years. Why, for what types of crimes? Oftentimes somebody who you know, couldn't afford uh, health car insurance gets pulled over, officer sees they don't have car insurance, they get arrested, they can't afford bail, they lose their job, they can't pay back what they owed, and they're in prison. And that's why uh, we have a system that'll give someone like Olin Branch 30 years for a robbery, robbery in which no one was hurt while George Zimmerman gets off for killing Trayvon Martin because he was a menace in Zimmerman's eyes. Now, in Leviticus 19.17, look at what it says. It says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is God co-signing this commandment as an expression of his very own identity. Now, notice that the command forbids vengeance and grudges, but that's exactly what happens. The branding of the other and the use of a system for revenge. And that is how we think of the criminal justice system oftentimes. Someone does something wrong, so we have to punish them for that. And we have witnessed the most dramatic overcriminalization that the world has ever seen. Author James Foreman Jr. writes it this way. When you attach this label, violent offender, and say nothing else, it's incredibly stigmatizing. It encourages us to abandon our ability to forgive and our impulses toward mercy. It tells us to ignore individual considerations, backstory, context, life history. You're a violent criminal, case closed, prison door locked. And this is the problem with mass incarceration. It's, it's not about crime, but about controlling who's branded criminals. And I remember experiencing this firsthand uh, when I was in a position, uh, I used to uh, serve with a music ministry and we would go around the country and we would do outreach concerts. And I remember the first time we did one in a youth detention center, it was in DC. Now we, we arrive and I mean, it's our first, many of our first time in any type of lockdown facility, and you know that when they close that door behind you, you feel it. And, um, you know, and they tell us we can't have any pens or pencils or anything sharp, and so, you know, we're all a little bit nervous. And, and then these, and this was a detention center, so, I mean, they were, they were kids like this small, like 12 in there, all the way up to 18. And they kind of just walked in, and they had to walk in line, and then they had to sit down in order, and I remember we started to try to just talk and, 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 and do the music, and it was just like a wall. And uh, yeah, we were intimidated. It was uncomfortable for everybody. But then there was one moment in the concert where one of the, the uh, young ladies in the band, she started to share her testimony about how God had saved her, about how he had redeemed her. And I, and I remember I started to hear sniffles in like the bleachers where they were sitting, and I was like, what is going on? 
and I could see people crying. And then we, we presented the gospel, and, I, and we couldn't have, hand out pencils because of the danger. And so we were like, yo, if you want to, like, accept Christ as your Savior and Lord, then raise your hand. Not thinking anybody's going to raise their hand because, you know, they got to be, like, hard for their, you know, other folks that are there. They were like, they could, they were, yo, make sure you get me. Like, yo, I, me, me, me. And by the end of the concert, we were, we were just hugging each other and celebrating. And it was just this, this wall had been broken down. And I remember how much I realized when I came in, I saw blue jumpers and scary people. And when I left, I saw human beings. I saw kids. Sadly, punishment, not mercy, is absolutely at the heart of why we tolerate this problem. And our imagination is deeply steeped in the ideology that crime is done by dangerous people that need to be put away. Partiality prevents us from having a proper perspective. But when you look at the Bible story, when you look at God's outlook, you see something much different. You see, in this very passage, right, in Leviticus, the lawbreaker is called the neighbor. And in fact, the one who's writing this, Moses, has his own story. Because you see, before he was the great deliverer, he's in Egypt and he had an APB out on him because he saw an issue of police brutality happen and he intervened. The Egyptian got killed and he fled. It's right there in the book, in the story. And 40, some odd, 40 years later, he comes back and God chooses this one, this one who did this horrific thing to go and deliver his people. And as I read that story, I go, why, why do we not brand Moses? Why do we not look at Moses like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to read this. It's by an ex-con. And you know why? It's because we have his whole story. See... <laughs> We, we, see, we, 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 know, we don't just look at that moment in time and say that's all of who Moses is. See, we get to see the calling story. We, see the get, we get to see the redemption. We get to see the full picture. But the problem with partiality is you only see part. And you allow that part to determine all of who that person is. They're a criminal. They're a thief. They're a burglar. That's it. But what if God saw us like that? What if that was the way he related to us? God sees us and decides to give us a just mercy embodied in the life of Jesus. And say, in spite of what they've done, in spite of their brokenness, they're worth pursuit. There has only been one person who had the right to label all any of us guilty. And that was Jesus who was sinless. Yet he made the one who did not know sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Y'all didn't catch that because if you did, you'd be making some noise right now. The one who did not know sin became sin and God, God treated him as our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, so that God would treat us as completely righteous. That is scandal if I ever heard it. Shonda Rhimes can't even write something like that. The perfect, pure, holy one treated as though he was the one that was guilty because we were. 
Our king was tried in a court, victimized by police, hung on a cross, and wrongly accused criminal by a society that viewed his very existence as a threat. Jesus embodied all of these identities, not just for you and for me, but for all of those who still need to hear that message of hope and love. You see, spiritually, we're broken and the ones that God could call guilty. We were incarcerated, or at least we were, in a prison of sin and death, and Jesus Christ became a felon in order to provide for us pardon. To get the proper perspective, we need to remember how Jesus saw us. And if we see that, then how, can we, how dare we look down on somebody else? See, the church isn't powerless in mass incarceration because we worship a convicted felon who was executed by the state. And now an ex-con sits on the throne of the universe with all power in his hand. So our first knee-jerk reaction should always be mercy. Everything that you and I have is a mercy. The church of Jesus Christ is a mercy. But historically, we've had a punitive disposition toward rule breakers and not a merciful one. We look at people and say, how dare you be a sinner? How dare you break the rules? But how should our experience of mercy shape our engagement with mass incarceration? Our call isn't just to help the accused and the guilty. Our call is to realize that we are all the accused and the guilty who have received more than just mercy, but grace. We could be the prisoner. And that's just not metaphorical to me. Because if you're like me, you could at least think of a few moments in your life where but by the grace of God. I could tell you, I know one of mine. I'll tell you about it. <laughs> Turn the camera off. It's like, no. <laughs> So I used, to, uh, deliver, uh, I used to deliver a paper route when I was like 15 with my um, older cousin. It was a huge paper route, so we would, it was like 200 papers. So we would drive in a car, big station wagon, to the distributor at like 4 in the morning, you know, fold up the papers, put them in bags, and then like go sling them for a few hours. Now one day, so this was like Sunday morning, 5 a.m., sleepy days, one-way street, you know, so, you know, we're just kind of going. And I'm like asking my cousin, like, hey, let me drive, right? He's like, I'm like 14, 15 years old. He's like, fine. Ain't no, you know, no cars out in the street. So I get in the car, and I'm like, I'm mad short, so I'm like just kind of barely looking over. It was this old station wagon. And we're just kind of cruising, just, you know, just touching the gas, going straight. It's a quiet street. But then some cars come behind, right? And I think, okay, well, I need to, like, just kind of turn out the way because it was a big station wagon. And so I kind of turn, and, and the car is kind of behind, it honks, and I get nervous and flustered, and so I just, like, floor it, right, right into a parked car, right? And then I'm, like, shot and shot, so I, like, push the gas even further, <laughs> and the station wagon lifts up the car that's parked, right? You know, the car goes past, and my cousin is down the street like, yo, stop! So he, like, he runs, and he goes, in, and he gets in the car, and, like, we kind of, you know, he's pull over and it's like we ain't got no insurance and we drove off now I thought about that moment after I went to the youth detention center and thought what would have happened if somebody just happened to be out looking through the window and would have called 
and we would have been arrested, and who knows what would have happened from there. We all have one of those moments, or some of those moments in our lives, if we were to be honest. And that's why it's so important for us to love our neighbor and to recognize that but by the grace of God go we. What if Jesus calls us to be a church that builds beauty, not out of those who are deemed most desirable, but out of the people that society throws away? That's what the kingdom of God is all about. Not retribution, but restoration. Retribution only seeks to punish. Restoration seeks to make whole what was broken. And that's what our church must become. And that is the proper perspective. Well, lastly, the power of proximity. The power of proximity. Instead of being punitive and vengeful, God commanded them, love your neighbor, for I am the Lord. But what does that mean and what does that look like? Well, I recently talked to uh, Pastor Zach Martin. He's a great uh, nonprofit named Trellis who works on justice issues and helps to organize communities of faith. And he, and he was telling me about how he started talking, he lives right here in Park Slope, to some teens in Gowanus. And he realized that these teens felt like that as the neighborhood changed and gentrification came in, that they were unwanted in their own neighborhood, like that they shouldn't even go into the stores that, you know, kind of lined Fifth Avenue and the other streets. So he went and he shared this story with the business owners right here in this neighborhood. And they were like, like, man, we don't want that impression at all. And so he creates a mentoring program just this summer. And in the mentoring program, he gets them summer work in the very stores that they didn't think that they were even welcomed in. Now, after the summer, he debriefs with the, uh, you know, during the summer, he debriefs with the store managers. And they're like, yo, they're killing it. This is great. But one day, there was a, um, you know, a scenario with this young lady, Denise. Now, Denise was a standout in the project. She was very uh, passionate, had strong leadership capabilities. But one day, as they were just kind of hanging out with her friends in Gowanus, a fight broke out. And because this fight broke out, she stands on one of the tables and tries to create order where there's chaos. Well, someone called the police up until that point, and so the police come in and arrest everybody, all the teens that are there, including Denise. And she was charged with being a menace, the one who was trying to stop the fight. Now, after five hours, they eventually get around to calling her mother. Can you imagine having a 14, 15-year-old, just being in, you being in, in prison, locked up, one summer day, because a fight happened to break out in front of you. Well, her mom couldn't afford bail, and so she calls up Zach because he had you know, already developed rapport. So Zach actually calls an, uh, an officer who actually worships here at this church, and he got her out. And, our, and Zach was telling me when he went in, and on the one hand, he was happy that he was able to get Denise out, but then he looked at all the other teens that didn't have that kind of a connection. And they're sitting there overnight in prison because some two people got into a fight. You see, that's what it means and looks like to label and to punish. 
um, and just be very overwhelming in the response. And this is what Brian Stevenson says in his book. He says, proximity has taught me some basic and humbling truths, including this vital lesson. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. See, when you get close to people, when you realize, oh, wait, I know you're locked up. I know you're in this situation, but that's not all of who you are. Then you start to realize I'm not my worst moment either. And as a result of that, what should be our reaction and our temperament and our disposition? Well, I'll give you four quick strategies and then I'm out of your way. First, proximity, right? The aspect of being close, close enough to touch, close enough to talk, close enough to put yourself in risk to be harmed. That proximity gives us a new vision for the gospel. You see, we need a comprehensive framework for the gospel that's in line with the major narrative of God's word. We've talked about this each week of this series, and it's because it's so important for us to understand, right, that there's that side A and that side B. There's that aspect of the knowledge and the understanding of doctrine and and who God is, that side A that we have to have. But unfortunately, too many churches in there. And there's also this need for side B. And side B is the ethical side. It's not just what you know, but what you're going to do about it. It's not just what you believe, but how does what you believe impact other people around you in the understanding of God's just character and nature? Now, that, that mixer in the middle, as we learned, was God's wisdom who gives us the understand to remix the situations around us. So we can see teens that look alienated and, and, and just completely withdrawn from their very own communities and create a scenario in a mentoring program where now they're working at the very stores that they thought didn't want them. We can go into the very people that feel like they've been cast aside and rejected. We can go in and advocate for them. That's what it looks like to apply God's word to life. Side A and side B. And also to remember that the Bible isn't written from the perspective of the master, but of the slave. (laughs) You see, the, the Israelites wrote the Exodus story, not the Egyptians. This means that we need to be teaching and telling the stories as a church from the perspective of the powerless, not the powerful. And that involves being able to speak truth to power in the systems that are so corrupt and oppressive. Jesus doesn't just merely save us with his knowledge, but he went and did something about it. And what he did challenged the whole system that was around him. The gospel reminds us that we, we are forgiven and that we also need to forgive. That's another part of this vision. And it may have been something criminal that may have happened, a physical offense, someone may have stolen something, or it could be something even more deep and emotional than that, a betrayal. And even on that very smaller level, there's this aspect where how we engage and respond to these issues really tells us a lot about how much the gospel has penetrated into our very own hearts. See, we can't be talking justice, justice when we don't even display mercy and grace to those that are in our immediate vicinity. We have to be able to do both. I encourage us all to think about ways that we can reach out and rally around people that are on the margins in that way. And specifically, 
I even encourage us to think about ways where, you know, we've heard Lordessa's story and it's getting cold out. She was telling me they have just paper thin clothes. They'd only give them like a couple pairs of socks and underwear. And so as a family, they come and kind of cobble things together. What would it look like for Olin to see that we as a church care enough that when they go up there every other month to make that visit, we, that we got some stuff in that care package from us as well. So I'd encourage all of you to look into ways that you can help her on a specific level. But proximity also reclaims a vision of restoration. It reclaims a vision of restoration. See, we need a vision for restoration and not just retribution. Before we can help incarcerated people, we have to restore the dignity of the fact of the incarceration and how that robs that from you. This means we have to embrace forgiveness and extend mercy in our lives, as we said, but also look at this aspect, and Lord S. mentioned it, of restorative justice. Now, what is that? Restorative justice heals the harm that was caused by the crime. When victims, offenders, and community members meet to decide how to do that, that result can be transformational. See, it's not just about locking people up, but there are just these amazing stories when you start to hear how this has happened where victims like of just horrible things, somebody that murdered somebody's spouse or child or, or whatever, and they come face to face. And, and, you know, when they are in the position to want to do that, but then they have a conversation and the, the, the perpetrator realizes what they've done to a deeper level than they've ever heard. But then the person that's the victim can get a sense of closure as well. And, there, and what we've seen is that this actually impacts recidivism or how many people go back to prison. It, it, it gives a sense of wholeness. It's not just this, un, this empty thing of somebody just being locked away somewhere. It emphasizes accountability, making amends, and if they're interested, facilitating meetings between victims and offenders. Now, the other thing that restorative justice, if you're an educator in here, if you teach, one of the other realities of this issue of mass incarceration is the school to prison pipeline. And if you're not familiar with that, that's basically just the scenario in which even truancy or not showing up to school or having some type of a violation in the school being suspended can turn into a criminal offense. And we've seen the metal detectors, the police officers, and the way that behavior, even in schools, becomes a gateway into a prison industrial complex. Now, these restorative justice programs in schools can be things that you can help implement to stop that pipeline, to give another version and a more restorative component to what it means to have justice and wholeness. This is what Jesus did on the cross. It's amazing. He's sitting there. He's dying. He's in excruciating agony, suffering for the sins of the world, being mocked by a murderer to his right-hand side, but then this other murderer on the left realizes, wait, this, this man isn't, he's not like us. He, he, didn't, he didn't do anything, and he's not even upset about it. And, and he says, hey, hey, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus turns to this convicted, guilty murderer and says, this day you will be with me in paradise. That's, for, that's a vision for restoration, not just retribution. And perhaps this proximity will help us to see the value of rehabilitation. Rehabilitation. Perhaps the greatest injustice in our criminal justice system is that the system doesn't rehabilitate, but rather reproduces more pain. 
After people have paid their debt to society, they can't vote, receive government assistance, get a loan, financial aid, public housing. Now think about that. We already said 53% are underneath the poverty line. So where are you going to live in New York City? And in the midst of all of that, okay, you say, well, you can get a job. And you have to check this box every time you apply. Have you been convicted of a felony? Yes. Whose application do you think is going to be looked at as a last resort? This is where us as a church can step in, and especially as we go to Flatbush, we must make it our aim to restore dignity for the formerly incarcerated, but also help them get reestablished in society. And part of that is even the names and the words that we use. Khalil shared that with last week. And stop calling people ex-cons and convicts and felons as if that one moment defines all of who they are. But instead, refer to them as people who've been incarcerated. People like us who could have been. We need to create programs for the formerly incarcerated. Now, there's uh, one cool thing that as I was doing this, just amazing things just were popping up as we looked at this aspect of rehabilitation. Uh, Danny Sanabria, who uh, serves here as a youth pastor um, at Park Slope Christian Tabernacle, he's actually serving um, with Youth for Christ, and it has a program, a mentor youth program at Horizon Juvenile Center that where they are looking for mentors for juveniles where you can actually serve and get involved. And if that's something that you're interested in, take that email address down, take that number down and let, you know, and you can just share. It's not a commitment. You can just say, hey, I want to know more information. How can I be involved in a young person's life? We need also to call to reform. But we don't just need to reform the incarcerated, but we need to reform the system that incarcerates them. This is what Micah 6.8 says. It says that, you know, these are, you can put that verse up. Um, mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what is the Lord require of you, to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Look at this is a summation of what he's saying. This is what God wants and requires from us, to love faithfulness, to love mercy, to walk humbly, recognizing that it could have been us, and then to act justly as if it was us ourselves who were in prison. We need more Christians like you going into the criminal justice system as lawyers, as judges, as social workers, as therapists, as educators, as police officers. And so in order to reform this brutal and biased system, the conditions in our prisons are built to break people, not to rebuild them. And we have to change that. Well, here's a couple ways to do that. One, we can read. Uh, here's some books, Just Mercy I've mentioned, Locking Up Our Own and The New Jim Crow. Also, I would say if you're a business owner, if you're someone who can actually just take that checkbox off of your application, do that. You know, I recently had the opportunity to hear from uh, Yvonne, uh, who's serving with a ministry called Prison Fellowship. And she shared with me uh, just how impactful it was for her to be in this. She said, this year I have been really struggling with forgiving my father. And God would have it that I am facilitating a class on total forgiveness. What I have gained thus far is greater than what I anticipated. 
and even more, she would later say, than what she's given. Uh, Prison Fellowship is an incredible ministry that is going to Rikers Island and other prisons and jails around us um, to minister to people, and you can be a part of that process too. Lastly, do justice. That was the last component of Micah 6.8. And it's also the name of our ministry that we um, are relaunching here at Bridge Church. My man, John Lewis, is directing. And we want you to stay tuned for ways that we are um, going to continue to press into these areas, especially as we set our eyes on Flatbush. But we don't have to wait until that moment. We can start realizing right now that those around us, proximity and the power of proximity is so significant and so important. So I would just challenge you and ask you, do you know someone who's incarcerated? And if the answer is no, change that. Let's pray. Lord, help us to move toward mercy instead of judgment and grace instead of revenge. Lord, I know that that can be so difficult when we realize how we have all experienced difficulty and pain or fear, and yet it's the gospel. Help us to respond to the crisis of over-criminalization that has resulted in mass incarceration. This is literally a form of bondage that is currently destroying not just individuals and families, but communities as well. Help us emphasize what you emphasize, that the gospel is about restoration and not simply retribution. The problem is amidst in our midst. It's big. We must respond to it with love and wisdom. Help our hearts break for the young women and men like Denise and Olin so we can promote a heart change that will transform the way that we look at incarcerated people and the systems that imprison them. Gracious God and Father, thank you for being merciful and gracious toward us. And that that is the basis of our posture to those who are incarcerated. We pray that this will well up into a wellspring that transforms the way that we look at the system that has them in bondage, a system unlike anything that the world has ever seen. Help us to love our neighbor, including the 2.3 million incarcerated people, and see them as our neighbors as well as their families. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.